Welcome to The Mortification of Spin, a podcast uh, which comes out under the auspices of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm your host, Carl Truman, and I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, Todd Pruitt. Uh, Todd. Yes. uh, Any news? Any news? Well, you and I were talking the other day about uh, your taste in music. Whenever there's a conversation with you, music inevitably uh, comes up. Now, you and your wife just recently attended a a concert uh, by some old English guy who plays the guitar, right? It was a couple of years ago. It was Mark Knopfler, actually. Mark Knopfler is impressive because... He has aged as I have aged. <laughs> Not well? Uh, <laughs> is that the... <laughs> well, he's kind of bald and a bit overweight now as well. <laughs> but what I like about Mark Knopfler is that unlike uh, certain bands out there, yes. not thinking particularly of the Rolling Stones, right. but unlike certain bands out there, Mark Knopfler has kind of slowed down right. as he's got older. He can still put together a blazing guitar solo. Yes. But his music has slowed as he slowed, and his latest uh, album, Privateering, I don't think, it's a double album, mm-hmm. I don't think there's a weak track on it anywhere. Yeah. Quite superb. Well, this is this is what I like about guys like Mark Knopfler, what I like about men like um, Aaron Cohen and some other aging guys who uh, have been making music for a long time, is they seem to be okay with the fact that they're aging. They they know it's not the late 60s anymore. And this is my problem with the Rolling Stones, other than the fact that I think, and, and Carl, maybe this will offend you, I, I think that the Rolling Stones have always been an overrated band. That's just me. That does offend me, but uh, well, uh, carry on. It's carry okay. On. I, think they're, I think they've always been overrated. However, there's something about seeing Mark Knopfler, or to a certain extent also Eric Clapton, still doing some things that I think are new and fresh and and relevant for where they are in their stage in life. Um, I, I can say that about Robert Plant. This this album he did with uh, um, Alison Krauss a few years ago. It's fantastic. But the Rolling Stones, to see those guys still prancing around singing Satisfaction. There's a problem with that call. Come on, there's yeah. a, oh, th- there's these a, guys there's are a, having a... tea with the queen, and they're and they're still, you know, singing. I can't. As get I said some years ago, their tours are now sellouts in every sense <laughs> of the word. That actually brings us by a very contrived uh, avenue to today's topic. We want to talk about the birth of the cool. Uh, another one of my musical interests, uh, well, I haven't listened to him for some years now, Miles Davis. Yes. Miles Davis in the in the late 40s put together a great album, The Birth of the mm-hmm. Cool, which changed the face of jazz. Uh, Birth of the Cool highlights the importance of this thing, this nebulous thing, cool, mm-hmm. to culture. And we now live at a time in the, certainly in America, where Christianity, certainly in terms of its subculture, has gained a certain cool. Uh, I've been reformed, I've been a Calvinist since the day um, in my first year at university, 300 years ago, mm-hmm. when I read J.I. Packer's book, God's Words. And right. I remember running across uh, St. Catherine's College to speak to a friend about what I'd read, that the 
Packer's treatment of election there opened the Bible for me. Right. I became a Calvinist at that moment. I became reformed a little bit later mm -hmm. on, uh, unlike the skinny jean brigade out there. <laughs> I make a distinction between being merely Calvinist yes. and actually being reformed. I became reformed sometime later on. But what was interesting was that that, that meant that I was not cool, right. even in Christian circles, right. up until about five years ago, right. where suddenly it was too late for me to be cool anyway. <laughs> I no longer fitted into those skinny jeans. Yes. My wife did say to me the other day, you know, you're always trashing people in skinny jeans, but you used to wear them. And I said, yeah, I used to wear them. I hate the fact that other people still can wear them. And that's why I object to them so strongly. Sure. Uh, but suddenly, Calvinistic theology... Mm -hmm becomes cool right. five or six years ago, maybe as a result of Colin Hansen's book, Young, Restless, right. and Reformed. Maybe Colin Hansen was merely describing something that was already taking place, perhaps as a combination of the two. But suddenly, Calvinism is kind of cool. Right. It starts to get write-ups in broadsheet newspapers. We have hip, or they were at the time young, they're now really middle-aged sure. uh, pastors like Mark Driscoll mm -hmm. coming through and making a big splash culturally. And a lot of people start to jump on the bandwagon. Right. And given that I'm a you know, miserable middle-aged cynic, mm -hmm. alarm bells start to go in my mind about, is the Calvinist revival true because it's true? Right. Or is it true because it's cool? Right. Is it Coolvinism? Mm -hmm. Hey, that's a really bad, hey, I that's like a, that. That's a really bad pun. That's I was reading really... some recently that puns are, are usually done by people with deep psychological flaws. <laughs> so there you are. Is Calvinism really yeah. Coolvinism? Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. Let, let's drop well, that. Well, I, so. I, I have the same question and the same concern about the Young Restless Reform movement. I, I would certainly uh, fit the description of a of a guy who was a, a young first time senior pastor who went through a, a theological crisis of having to decide if, if I was going to believe some of the sentimental notions of God that I was raised on, and, and not to criticize what I was raised in, but it, it was not until I began reading, as you mentioned, J.I. Packer, J.I. Packer, that I was being exposed to some notions about God that I really hadn't heard explained to me before. And the problem was, is I was seeing it in the Bible, and I was running out of things to preach because I didn't want to preach that. Um, and, and all I can say is I, it was like a second conversion experience where I bowed the knee to that truth. But I, and incidentally, uh, Packer's book that Carl mentioned is still in print, very much uh, uh, readable and highly recommended. That all said, I have the same concern about the Young Restless Reform movement, is that for a while it seemed rebellious, um, it, it seemed sensational, it seemed subversive. And I think by virtue of that, it may have drawn a lot of young people to it for those reasons, rather than because of clear doctrinal conviction, but because it seemed like the hip thing to do. There were a lot of cool Calvinists. And I sense in some of the things I'm reading that the excitement over that is beginning to wane precisely because it's not subversive anymore. Yeah, the old radicals become the new establishment. Right. Always, always a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember a few years ago, I actually wrote on this topic on Reformation 21, and I had you know, one of the sharpest email responses I think I've received to almost anything I've written. The person wrote to me and basically said, when I, I essentially said, is it, is it popular because it's true, or is it true because it's popular? Mm -hmm. 
And I had a very sharp email from somebody who essentially said, you know, I, I've always enjoyed reading your stuff, but no more. I'm not going to read you anymore after what you said today. It was insulting. <laughs> it was a lie. Da -dum -dum. I thought it was a very interesting response. But, you know, I've not seen anything since that time that has really caused me to, to rethink my position. No. It seems to me that if, if this is a genuine movement of God, we will see long-term fruit mm -hmm. at the level of the church. And I don't mean 60,000 people turning up to a stadium right. to hear some guy preach. I don't mean 20,000 downloads mm -hmm. of a sermon by a particular cool or, or, or right. hip teacher. I mean we will see local churches growing where people are properly connected. They know each other. They watch each other's back. They do each other meals when they're ill. Mm -hmm. We will actually see the, the real growth of proper New Testament right. church life that I think simply can't be achieved in the kind of massive, humongous, as we would right. say in, in Britain, humongous yeah. churches that seem to be the flagships of this new movement. Well, and, and in many ways, was, was not the Protestant Reformation something that was driven along by pastoral needs, a recovery of pastoral ministry, of biblical pastoral ministry and ecclesiology. It wasn't simply a, a, a recovery of, of the understanding of God's sovereignty or a drafting of the doctrines of grace, but these were men, Luther and others, whose passion and zeal was for the church, for the people of God, for the recovery of, of, of true pastoral ministry from the abuses of the medieval church. And so, and so, would it not follow then that if we were reformed, um, where we'll see the difference is, as you mentioned, in the local church, faithful men doing the faithful work of the ministry? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And I think when you look at the career of somebody like Calvin, what is it that drives Calvin? What is it that makes Calvin controversial in Geneva? By and large, it's it's pastoral reforms, right. it's liturgical reforms, it's ecclesiological reforms. These are the mm -hmm. things that that mean he butts heads with the traditional, old, politically powerful Genevan right. families. Calvin is really engaged in, I think he would have understood the Reformation as an attempt to purify, to recast worship and church life along New Testament lines. It's not simply a recovery of an anti-Pelagian gospel, right. not simply a recovery of a gospel based on election. Mm -hmm. It's the recovery of, I, I know this phrase can be used in to mean things that I don't mean by this but it's the recovery of a form of life yes a form of ecclesiastical right. life that's what he was trying to recover and I just don't see that uh, in the young restless no. and reformed maybe it, we're too close to it to see it, yeah, it but I think be. we will only be able to see you know I had one of the the big leaders of this movement once say to me you know this is you know don't get in our way this is a movement of God yeah. well I, I hope that's the case and I don't want to get in the way of a movement of God, but I don't think we're really going to be able to tell that until 2025 years sure. hence. Sure. And, and isn't not also, again, concerning on this, when we have some of the early leaders of the Young Restless Reform Movement building bridges with people that we would 
I think rightly consider false teachers. Yeah, men like T.D. Jakes. Yep. Um, and others, and and there seems to be uh, a fascination now among some of the early pioneers of the young restless reform movement to um, be dabbling in, of all things, prosperity gospel. Yeah. Um, and saying things about the pastoral ministry, um, saying things about the laypersons in their church, um, which seem to be harsh and mean-spirited. Um, all of that, I think, begs the question of, is the Young Restless Movement tr- truly reformed, or, or is it something else? And, and, and I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. I, I admire and appreciate, for instance, Kevin DeYoung very much, and one of the things I appreciate about him is he is a churchman, and he's written very, very well and thoughtfully on the church and, its, and, and, and these kinds of connections. But uh, broadly speaking, as a movement, I, I, I wonder, I, I have to wonder about how tethered it is uh, to doctrine rather than simply uh, cultural things. Yeah, and this brings us back to that that cool aesthetic. Right. That is going to throw up all manner of problems right. in the, the medium to, to long term. First of all, of course, the cool aesthetic is by and large a youth thing. Right. It appeals to young people and it appeals to old people who want to pretend to be young sure. people. So, you know, we have the embarrassing sight of 40-something ministers prancing around in torn jeans. Uh, of course, <laughs> you, you, were, you were wearing them last week, I noticed, Todd. But I, I, assume they, I assume they tore merely when you bent over no, rather than no, by the no. designer. Uh, no, no, I bought them with those tears in them. I oh. paid more for those tears, oh. Carl. Oh, <laughs> you really, I don't know, you've really disrupted my journey at that point, brother. <laughs> that is, that is not helpful. Um, that is, yeah, I don't feel quite as authentic as <laughs> oh, I did uh, when I came in. Uh, the other side of it is, is that cool, yeah, this is something that, that is going to hit some people very, very hard. Yeah. Cool is an aesthetic determined by the wider culture, right. not determined by the church. The, the recent... Uh, You'll have to remind me how to pronounce this man's name. <laughs> you uh, are wanting to refer, I'm Carl. going to say Giglio, which is, I think would be a more accurate pronunciation, but his actual well, name is... It's, it's accurate in your mind, and I understand you're European, but his name is Louis Giglio. Giglio, okay. Yep, the founder Louis, of, the, of the Passion Movement. And, and by the way, as we're recording this, it, it is Inauguration Day as we are recording yep, this. Yep. And of course... We haven't got a clue where Mr. Giglio is on. No, we know that he is not at the inauguration, at least. But the Reverend Giglio, who, and I, just as a disclaimer, and I do like to drop names every once in a while. I know Louis. I haven't spoken to him in around 10 years, but uh, came to know him when I was a senior in high school. He's a a good man. He's an honorable man. Um, I learned a lot when I was a senior in high school and my first few years in college um, from him. Matt's um, nodding, so I think we've done enough to cover ourselves on the legal front there, and, and I know Billy Graham, of course, as well. But, um, but, but Louis, what, what's interesting, what we've seen and what you're talking about, is it possible for the church, for evangelicals, for Bible-believing Christians to be, uh, to be cool? Of course, you know uh, the whole debacle with him being invited to uh, say the prayer at the inauguration. Then it was discovered that some 15 years ago he preached a sermon in which he affirmed that homosexuality is indeed a sin, and of course our cultural despisers rose up and drove him from uh, the inauguration. And despising us culturally. Despising what a surprise. us culturally. The Pope is Catholic. Exactly. And what, uh, and part of what makes this interesting to me is that Louis has done everything right to be accepted by the wider culture 
culturally speaking, uh, they do a lot. The whole passion movement does a lot for uh, to, to fight uh, sex trafficking, for instance. Um, but 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 he's finding that the problem is you can do all the right things, but as long as you're still going to believe that what the Bible says about human sexuality is true and that the tomb is empty and that Jesus was born of a virgin, they are never going to accept us. And should we be okay with that? I think we should be absolutely okay yes. with that. I mean, the, what, what strikes me is how upset Christians get. Right. You know, you have the secular state despises Christianity and we, we're somehow offended right. by that. It's a little bit like, as I just made an allusion, you know, be like being offended that the Pope is Catholic right. or that Chairman Mao is dead or right. that Belgium is a small country. <laughs> I mean, these are all fairly self-evident propositions. Right. Christianity is offensive to the natural man. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, Mr. that Mr. Giglio has preached something that's offended them. Well, I you know, to misquote Churchill, so he's offended somebody. Right. Great, that means that at least once upon a time, he believed something <laughs> enough to offend people with yeah. it. What we have to realize is that it doesn't matter how skinny your jeans, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter where you position that tear, <laughs> it doesn't matter what bands you listen to, yeah. it doesn't matter where you get your hair cut or what uh, glasses you wear. Mm-hmm. I was going to say spectacles, but I think that's a, an English term for them. Probably doesn't it, work. It here. is, and mine are Oakleys, but yeah. go ahead. It doesn't matter how cool you think you are. If you affirm the biblical position on the resurrection, yeah. the culture is going to think you're an idiot. Right. If you affirm the biblical position on homosexuality, the culture is very soon going to treat you with the same contempt that it treats a white racist supremacist. Right. right. And we got to deal with that. Right. That's just the way it is. So uh, this idea that we can somehow impact or transform the culture by mimicking the culture as much as we possibly can Absolute nonsense, Indeed. because too much accommodation will never be enough. Right. Will and, never and, be enough. And, and I found the response from, from Louis and his church, I found it to be instructive, actually in a, in a sad sort of way, because part of the response was, look, you know, this, this really isn't our bailiwick anymore. This is, you know, the issue of homosexuality is just not something we concern ourselves with anymore. That was from a sermon 15 years ago. Now, now they're not saying we don't believe it anymore. They're, they're not going to go so far as to say we now deny what the Bible says uh, about uh, human sexuality, because I'm sure that he still very much believes that. But there was almost like a, an appeal to say, hey, listen, can't we just agree on this thing? I'm not, I, I, I've, I've been a good boy the last 15 years. I haven't brought this up anymore. And of course, that's still not enough. Mm. That's still not enough. Yeah. And at what point are we, are we going to say we, just, we, we give too much when we seek to be um, accepted so broadly that will be accepted on a platform with the President of the United States. And this is the, the, the homosexual issue because of the power of the lobby. This is the big issue, right? moral issue of this generation. I anticipate a major evangelical collapse on this within the next 10 or 15 years. There's already seeing signs of that in the United Kingdom. Steve Chalk last week, uh, an influential right. evangelical pastor, uh, openly shifted on the issue, or at least came out uh, cleanly in favor of monogamous 
homosexual mm-hmm. marriage, doesn't have a problem with it. Interesting enough, Chalk uh, first hit the headlines about a decade ago when he denied penal substitution. Right. Well, you know, one could one could draw a genealogy here and say, well, yeah. if you deny penal substitution, you're really reconstructing your doctrine of sin as something that isn't offensive to God, but exactly. is, if you like, is relationally problematic among human yes. beings. If you think of sin as primarily something that speaks of problematic relations between human beings, why should you consider homosexuality sure. wrong? Yeah. Chalk was it's, the one who famously yeah. called penal substitution cosmic child abuse. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the level of intelligence, right. an intelligent theological debate one's engaged in uh, with somebody mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, I agree, by the way, of your assessment that the issue of homosexuality is going to be um, an issue of collapse for the evangelicals, because yeah. we are seeing now, and not just Steve Chalk, we are seeing some men here, prominent evangelicals who are who are still, they're, they're trying to to keep their grip on on what the Bible says about human sexuality, but they've flubbed it in recent interviews and uh, uh, public forums because I guess that's the first stage is, is you become embarrassed of the doctrine you become embarrassed of the truth before you jettison it yeah. and and unfortunately we have seen some rather prominent and influential um, men within the church uh, publicly blush. Yeah. over the Bible's standard of human sexuality. And one can feel for, for people in that situation. Sure. I mean, I was recently preaching in my church on a Sunday evening, and we had a couple of visitors in the church. I didn't know who they were. My sermon happened to be touching on the historical Adam mm-hmm. that night. Mm. And I'm standing up there thinking, these people are going to think I'm a nut job. Yeah. Because maybe I should leave that bit of my sermon right. out. Maybe I should nuance it. Yeah. Can't do it. Right. Can't do it. I, I want to be liked. I want people to think that I'm an urbane, intelligent person. Sure. Hard though that is to imagine. You know me, Todd. But this is where it's going to pinch us. Right. And if you're into something because it's cool and hip, that's going to vanish like the morning mist Absolutely. when the heat comes. Right. If churches in the United States lose their tax-exempt status in the next decade or 15 years, it's quite possible. That's going to impact giving. Absolutely. Who's going to keep giving? Uh, you know, I have to say, I hopefully, I hope that I would continue to give at the same level, mm-hmm. but man, it would hurt. I would really know mm-hmm. if I was committed at that point. <laughs> right. I wonder how many of these mega churches would be able to survive on on offerings rather mm-hmm. than offshore assets or however right. they, they, I'm sure there are probably pastors of offshore investments at some of these churches. <laughs> right but, along with the, the, the pastor of but, arts, yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, losing your tax-exempt status, that's not even persecution. That's not being sent to a gulag. That's not being separated from your family. But even that, I suspect, would have a devastating effect on the church. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're entering very interesting times. And, you know, the birth of the cool just ain't going to cut it Mm -mm. at this point. No. And one one of the things that concerns me about the rise of of the acceptance, the, the normalizing of homosexuality, even among Christians... Is, is, for instance, a statistic I just saw recently. Uh, the year I graduated from high school, 1985, over 90% of graduating seniors, nationwide, not Christian, but just nationwide, over 90% of graduating seniors identified homosexuality as sinful. And now it's flipped almost completely where now less than 10% of graduating seniors identify homosexuality as something that is Sinful. Well, that includes lots and lots of "quote unquote" churched kids, yeah. and and I think uh, that what the culture has done to confuse them about their own sexuality, and the amount of time they spend in in media consumption and whatnot, is uh, is very harmful and is going to make a clear 
message on biblical sexual ethics, not only offensive outside of the church, but offensive within our own congregations. Yeah, and the part of the problem, of, as you also touched on there, and maybe this is one for a, for a later podcast, the power of the media. We've yeah. not lost the argument. Right. We've not lost the argument. We've lost the culture. Sure. Uh, it's soap operas. Right. It's sitcoms. It's these things that send powerful, again, I, I, it's an overused word, I know, for, for me, but these, they send aesthetic signals right. that opposition to homosexuality is distasteful. Correct. It's not that it's been demonstrated to be wrong, it's just distasteful. Right. We all know people who are homosexual, they're nice people. Get on mm-hmm. well with them. Wish them no ill. Right. But you can't base your moral code, you can't base your understanding of the framework within which sex is meant to occur Correct. on whether somebody is, you know, we'd say a decent bloke or not. Right. You need something more sophisticated. Sex is too important not to <laughs> right. be set within a complex philosophical framework to understand its significance. It isn't simply an exchange of bodily fluids. Right. Right. Well, good, uh, good discussion, something that um, clearly anyone in pastoral ministry needs to, uh, I hope, consider, and, and Christians at large, because we're getting all sorts of uh, advice on how to take the culture back and uh, speak to politicians if they don't honor a conservative evangelical. Well, we just can't expect those things. We, we shouldn't expect those things. But we ought to have an idea how to answer um, when we're questioned. We need to pray, and we need to know what we believe and have reasons for that belief. Mm -hmm. That is the key way. And the only way ultimately to influence culture is to see more and more people turning to Christ. Right. Which may not happen. That is in the, you know, that is for for us to propose, but for the Lord to dispose. Right, right. And it won't happen through uh, putting pressure on a president to let one of our guys pray. No. No, what happens is, it's like that moment in King of the Hill where the uh, uh, Hank Hill says to the Christian rock band, you know, you're not making Christianity better, you're making rock worse. I think when we, uh, when we dance to the tune of the secular authorities, yeah. we don't make them more Christian. We make right. ourselves more secular. Indeed, indeed. Well, uh, very happy that you were able to uh, join us today for the Mortification of Spin. Hope that it's been helpful for you. We do encourage you to uh, come to the website of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Um, It's a wonderful ministry. We would encourage you to support the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Uh, They do a lot of wonderful work, work that is helpful for the church, work that is helpful for pastors, and we commend them to you. So for Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt, signing off now. Have a wonderful day.